Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we are exploring the threads of what it means to be humans woven into this earth and laying the groundwork for what is to come. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and it is such a pleasure to be back after my accidental hiatus over the last rather quite a few months and I am really excited to be bringing you a guest today that I actually recorded with in June and Lindsay Brown Davis is an incredible hunter, a writer, an entrepreneur, uh, and a citizen scientist and all around incredible human and I know that as of my recording of this intro, she has passed through the birth portal and is currently embarking on her first hunting season with baby in tow, and I think that she is just such an incredible inspiration. As I was going through this episode and kind of looking for clips and and not remembering the interview so well because it had been a minute, I was really struck with what Lindsay has to say about going after our dreams. And in this, she sort of details, and I don't want to give away too much, this process of getting to hunt an elk with a bow, this sort of black belt, top level hunt, and the pitfalls and triumphs and doubts along the way. I recorded an episode The other week, that kind of details the place that I've been in and just how important it is for me to return to this podcast as an anchor and a tether to this earth during what has been a very hard time for me and I think a hard time for many of us for reasons both both local and global and I realized that this podcast, this dream that I have, and I've spoken a lot about this dream, the dream of the podcast, how much it really provides me with an anchor into my life, into purpose, into mission, back into earth and back into community. And I really see this now that I've had this time off where I have been, for lack of a better word, lonely for the podcast and having this longing to return to this dream while simultaneously experiencing a sense of shame and disappointment that I have let myself down, perhaps that I have let listeners down, and that really difficult thing of getting back on the horse. And as I was listening to Lindsay talk about dreams, I'm reminded that the dreams that we are working towards, that we are building in our life, the 
purpose and connectivity that we are building in our lives is not a linear path, that it is going to have peaks and it's going to have troughs. It's going to have periods where we are perhaps traversing dark underpassages underneath the mountain, you know, these these sort of morias of the mind. And um, that was maybe way too geeky of a reference, but we're just going to keep going. Uh trespassing through these spaces where maybe we we drop our dream for a minute and I think my hope is that it allows us to better see our dream for what it is and its meaning within our lives and a sense of mission and I hope to bring that into future episodes and I also hope to continue to bring a grain of honesty about where I am and how I am traversing this because as I said in that solo episode, I just think that it's so rare that we get to see people in the process of going through hard times. We just often see them reflecting about those times as they look back on them. And so where I am right now is in this process of trying to get back on the horse and meeting resistance in the form of shame and disappointment in myself and a feeling that it's hard to return to the work that we do in this world when we've taken time off or to a dream that we've taken time off from. Um, and, and there is, there's just that sort of resistant barrier there. And so this is a big part releasing this first interview that it had been recorded for some time now and really wanting to share it with you all because I think that Lindsay is incredible in terms of articulating aspects of our ecosystem of hunting and of dreaming and of going through the daily act of working towards those dreams, even if that act is mundane, even if you are not called to do it in the moment, but the act of sitting there and creating consistency, which is something that I hope to find again. I want to thank you. I'm still in the process of replying to the messages that I received following my solo episode. So if you haven't received a reply from me, it, it will come in time. I am just, thank you. Thank you so much. One of the things that I really want to do in a future episode is talk about what it means to ask for and then in particular to receive help. And so thank you for helping me. Um, it, it warmed my heart and it fueled my mission in ways that I don't think I can yet put into words. And I am just so appreciative. Um, we have some really fun episodes coming up. A couple of you have reached out to me with guest ideas, which I really appreciated. I really want the back and forth of this act of podcasting, uh, you know, not just for it to be me speaking into the void, but for us to be in conversation as much as is possible. If you want to support the podcast, there are a couple of ways in the show notes. As always, one of the best ways to support the podcast is to drop a review on Apple Podcasts or leave a star rating on Apple or Spotify. This helps other people find the podcast and and feel that sense of, oh, I'm getting into some some really meaty and juicy conversations that I want to be hearing. 
not too keen to just keep prattling on today. I really want to bring you this interview, especially because it has been such a long time in the making. Uh, Lindsay's work is unparalleled in the hunting space, and I'm just so grateful for the knowledge and the wisdom that she really shares in the context of this episode. So go find her on social media and enjoy this conversation with Lindsay Brown Davis. We were just talking about liminal spaces, and I have been thinking a lot about liminal spaces, so maybe that's a good place to open because I feel like you are in, in many ways, the ultimate liminal space between maidenhood and motherhood and in this real cusp of about to, to enter that portal and to meet your baby. So I actually want to open with that. Yeah. Uh, well, waking up today, I'm 37 weeks pregnant, which is truly something I never thought I would pursue in life, um, Mm. which has been, you know, like so many things, like a wonderful surprise and a good lesson in the notion that I'm always going to be getting to know myself, you know, Mm. like there are these, these, like hunting was one of those things for me too, where it was like, I never thought I would do it. Nobody in my family hunts, like had opinions about it before it was something that I explored. And now it's something that deeply patterns my entire life. And so, yeah, motherhood is is definitely like this wonderful new adventure and this continual lesson in that like, I'm always going to be this developing person. And there's something about that that's super exciting. I'm like, ooh, what, what's going to happen in 10 years? Like what ways are my, you know, mind and heart going to open to new things that I, you know, Mm. thought would never be something that I would be pursuing in the past. I love that because I'm, I'm very similar in that I oftentimes surprise myself. And as I was going through your background and everything that you've done, there are a lot of these big threads that you've woven together. You've worked in permaculture, you've built homes, built gardens, you've raised animals, you've done hunting, you've done advocacy work. And I really enjoy when people have that scope where they're really devoted to developing skills and interests and driven by curiosity, but also very fluid in where it ends up taking them. Yeah. Oh, I'm such a skills junkie. (laughs) You and me both. Yeah. It's like the thing that I don't know how to do is the thing I want to learn, you know, Mm. and, and just, and like totally hobby addicted. And I, I think that came, like came from one, just being like a, a raised, like a tough tomboy girl and like getting to sort of redefine some of these stereotypes in, in the last few decades. Um, but also having these experiences where, you know, there's one that really sticks out as like this this point in my journey where I'd been interested in food and nutrition and and it was all because I was an athlete and it was based on my performance and output and it had no connection to land or um, food system health or, you know, anything like that. And um, over the years, I started to kind of experiment with food and performance and go from you know, vegetarian to 
learning about seasonal food and realizing I had this like big disconnect in my life about how I was Mm -hmm. thinking about nutrition and how I had a relationship to the land and wild places. And um, anyway, fast forward a couple of years, I was working for a field studies program for college students. And it was so cool. I mean, it was a program I didn't that changed my life. Um, where we spent two months in the back country and learning about permaculture at this homestead. And it was like mm. eco psychology and just all these things that I had, you know, blew my world wide open and gave me this sense of membership um, that I'd never experienced before mm. and gave me a way to land sustainability concepts that I'd been learning in school in this like global context, it gave me a way to like live and experience and integrate those things on the day to day capacity and like have a role in them and feel like I was, you know, leading a solution based life in some way, shape or form. But long story short, there was this uh, primitive skills teacher that um, was coming to teach us like how to make cordage and how to, um, you know, do hand and bow drill fire making and all this kind of stuff. And on the way to the location there was a uh, someone in the class found a roadkill fox and they were like, oh, we'll pick mm-hmm. it up and we'll have her do a skinning demonstration. And we got halfway through the demonstration at the end of the workshop and all my students were going out on a 24-hour wilderness solo. So it was like my one day off as a guide mm-hmm. in two months. And she, the instructor looked at me and said, you're going to finish this. And I went, Nope, no, I'm not. (laughs) Not on me. And she said, No, you're going to finish this. And she put me on my 24 hour solo with a half skinned fox and a piece of obsidian. (laughs) And I think for the first. With a piece of obsidian. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, amazing. Okay. Yeah. Real deal lady. And um, so uh, I think for the first, I don't know how long, like felt like two hours, I just sat in front of the thing and stared at it. And then like throughout that process, like, wow, it's so beautiful. Like, look at how these colors change and, you know, look at the track of this animal. And like, I can, I know what those look like in the dirt and now I see it in the paw and just Mm. like, like being able to start to experience this intimacy that I'd never had before with a wild creature. And then eventually I like, you know, picked up, where the um, fur was still attached and had to like just started exploring it. And then it was like this out of body experience where I watched my hands take over and know what to do in front of me. And Hmm. even though everything in my mind cognitively was telling me, Nope, not you. This isn't something you know how to do or that you even want to do. And so for me, it was like this, like explosive experience where I was like, even though my brain is telling me this is something I don't know how to do or that I can't do everything in my body and my hands knows what to do in this moment. And I was like, what else do I know how to do that? I don't think I can do, (laughs) you know, and it was just the coolest opening. So that like led me on this long path to animal processing and animal husbandry and eventually hunting and just like seeking out any opportunity to discover these skills that, you know, like may or may not just be in me 
um, and need to be tapped into, which is, I think, you know, something you and I share, right? It's like, we just Absolutely. explore. Yeah. And I've had those moments, those moments where you are connecting with something and your hands and your body are leading the way and your brain is just getting out of the way. And there is that yeah. deep sense of knowing. And I I want to get into a little bit of some of the other skills, but I first, I, I kind of want to tease at the idea of a sense of membership and intimacy, mm. because I mm -hmm. think that that is at its core that we as humans have a membership within our ecosystems and within place. And that knowledge lives in a really deep space that transcends our, our thinking brains. And mm -hmm. I think that's so much fundamental to those experiences where you make that connection. But I, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm curious to hear you tease out the idea of a sense of membership. Oh, yeah. I, I love this invitation um, to see ourselves in this way because I think so many of us have grown up with this understanding that we're separate from nature and that nature is this place that we go visit and it's an area on a map that you know we go play in or recreate or go for a hike or something like that and then we go home or it exists in a farm. Um, but that's, you know, over there and we're over here. And, you know, to me, it's like, that's one of the most heartbreaking, uh, I think, like waking realities of being human today is that we are perceived as separate from nature. And I also think that's what, you know, creates, that's like the baseline for so many of the like ecological and environmental issues that we are experiencing is that, you know, we view our consumption as something that just happens in a vacuum and doesn't actually have an effect on people or places or ecosystems all over the world. And so um, I think it's a heartbreaking and jarring concept to start to unpack where it's like, no, actually everything that we do in our waking life has an impact on an environment somewhere, you know, yeah. and that's hidden from us most of the time, whether it's yes. where our food is coming from or, you know, the raw materials of our clothing or where our trash goes or where our water comes from or all these systems that support our life, you know, it's, we're, we're brought up to think that they're just, they're hidden or, you know, other people manage them for us. Um, and in reality, like it can take a long time to pick apart the pieces. If you live, uh, you know, an urban life and you have to uncover all these different systems that support you. But I remember taking a, a bioregional quiz early on in my um, permaculture study, which I highly recommend to anybody that hasn't done one. They're like really humbling. But I remember just, you know, it was like name five migratory birds that live in your area. Where does your water come from? Where does your power come from? How many people are involved? All these things that start to daylight um, our connections to the people in the natural world around us. And just being so humbled by my personal results <laughs> of this quiz at the time. Um, and it started me on this path to, to 
membership in the ecosystem and realizing like I share, you know, a watershed with every other living thing around me from ridge top to river mouth in my mm. area. Um, and I think once I got through like the initial shock and heartbreak of realizing how disconnected my life was at that mm. moment, then it became, you know, something that was the grounding motivation of my passions and my hobbies, which was, oh, well, how do I, how do I build all these connections into my life? You know, how do I live in a way that reminds me that, you know, I am actually part of this wild ecosystem around me. And, and that that's been an interesting challenge over the years, because I've gone from living in very rural places, (laughs) managing, you know, 250 acre homesteads and farming and and having those connections be really obvious and easy to living in very urban places like now Salt Lake City where you know those those connections can be harder to maintain but they're still just as important so it's it's taken on many many forms but i i think that figuring out for me what those ways are to stay connected to that to that philosophy um has been like the, the consistent motivating healing factor, you know, and whether that's like me dipping off into the wilderness for eight days at a time or something like that, or just having a cup of rose hip tea in my, you know, suburban home here in Salt Lake, like it's the same feeling where, you know, I remember that, you know, my health is connected to the wild places around me and I'm a part of this ecosystem. Quick break, everybody, while I talk about one of our sponsors, Home of Wool. As the temps begin to drop in the Northern Hemisphere, there is no better time to get cozy and to think about your sleep environment than right now. Home of Wool is an incredible company that brings organic and OEKO, Ecotech certified materials that are free of any off-gassing or VOCs and are made from incredible natural materials like wool or organic cotton and linen. I am such a big fan of Home of Wool products, especially in my bedroom where I want to create the most cozy sleep environment for winter that I know is going to be regulating my temperature, that is going to be incredibly breathable, is going to be completely free of toxins, is going to wick moisture and resist mold and mildew, and is going to provide me with an incredibly supportive and beautiful night's sleep. And I know that that is wool. Wool has even been shown to raise our heart rate variability while we sleep, which I think is incredible. And I have a comforter and a pillow and a body pillow from Home of Wool. And I just think that they are incredible. They help keep me the right temperature in the winter, not too hot, not too cold, and help provide me with an incredibly comfortable and cozy sleep. And the best part is everything that they do is custom. So you can order custom mattresses or crib mattresses, body pillows, pregnancy pillows, various cushions, and they can customize them with different fabrics, whether that's organic linen and cotton or wool covers and then this beautiful 
organic or Ecotech certified wool filling. I just cannot recommend them enough. And if you're looking to upgrade the place where you spend one third of your life, your sleep, or other cushiony, comfy, cozy areas around your home, there is no better place than Home of Wool. And you can get a 10% discount today using the code Kate Cavanaugh. That's my name, K-A-T-E-K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H, by going to homeofwool.com and placing your order today. Again, that's 10% off with the code Kate Cavanaugh, K-A-T-E-K-A-V-A. N-A-U-G-H. And I can't wait to hear what products you're loving and how you upgrade your sleep with natural materials this winter. Yeah, I want I want to dive deeper into that, but I want to make sure that we touch on some of what you did prior to this too, because I think that to see some of the permaculture and some of the stewardship of of larger tracts of land uh, and and how that lands you where you are is actually really important to your story. It's funny. We don't, we don't always do backgrounds on the podcast, Mm. but I'm really intrigued at how you moved through all these different spaces and, and bringing you here to today. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say this is like journey of a thousand choices, right? (laughs) There's So if I like had to unpack it all, I'd be like, and then this thing happened and then this little thing happened and my mindset just, you know, kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed (laughs) in all these directions. Um, But there were some like big pivotal experiences along the way. Um, And I think, you know, getting, starting from a, a, a mindset of, and a motivation of personal health and then learning about ecosystem health and permaculture and sustainability that was tangible to me. Um, that was a crucial part of it. And then exploring, you know, every piece of that journey in various scales, whether that was, you know, animal husbandry and farming, either gardening or, you know, managing CSAs, um, or <laughs> like it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I just got hooked, you know, like I I went through all in my twenties. I just, it's like, I got this, I figured out that this was something that I love to do and that, you know how there's these things in life where you want to learn them like cameras for Mm -hmm. me, like I want to learn it and I'll, I'll study up but I won't retain the information yes. and like, I'll have to, like, it's just, I'm not naturally inclined <laughs> to have that be the thing that I get good at. You know, um, this, like, I always think it's so important to notice what you're fighting in your own cognitive, like retention, and then what is actually coming naturally to you and you just become a sponge for. And so like, I realized this was my sponge zone, you know, and that like, whatever anybody told me about a wild plant or its edibility or like how to find it. I was like zing in like locked into my brain. Like I would Mm. know this forever kind of information. And so that was like the, the sentiment Mm. that I had tapped into (laughs) and and I could, like could not get enough, like followed anybody around who was willing to teach me something about wild mushrooms or, you know, Mm -hmm. edible medicinal plants in the Rockies or whatever it was. And so that was like 
that was my twenties. Um, I think there's two in that, like there's a guiding force of touching something and having that not that sort of deeper inner knowing unfold where you are both simultaneously learning, being mentored, interacting within an ecosystem and feeling, feeling it. I mean, that tangible feeling when you pick up the obsidian and you begin to separate the hide from the musculature of that fox and, and in that liminal space of, of knowing and not yet knowing, I I think something magical unfolds. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I like to think that that is available to everyone as it relates to like food and nature, you know, like I, I, I want to believe that we all have in us that like innate sense of wonder and connection, and it just needs to be invited in most of us. You know, I think Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean everybody like would be the hunter in the tribe, you know, there, there'd be other (laughs) skill sets that people would master, but, um, but I think that's like the the really fun part in sharing my personal journey is that the whole thing I see as an invitation is like, well, you can do this too. You know, <laughs> like there's nothing, you know, so unique or special about me that mm-hmm. makes it that I get to pursue these things and that that's not possible for you or somebody else because I see them as, you know, these these sort of innate human qualities that we just get to explore, you know, and, um, you know, people will become more fascinated by certain things than others, but (laughs) it's out there. I think they're a little bit hidden too. I think in many of the ways that we've hidden away where our food comes from, where our water comes from, where the lithium for our batteries comes from, whatever it is, like we've, we've hidden a lot of that away. And we've also hidden, some of the skills that are involved in hunting and farming as an option. I don't mm-hmm. think that growing up, I felt that that was something that I could go into, that that was a career path or even a hobby path. It wasn't yeah. presented to me. And so right. I'm, and I'm curious for your lens on this, because I do think that we are losing some of the skills that both provide provide food, provide nourishment, provide stewardship, but also just provide joy. And mm-hmm. we're losing them because we don't see them and have the chance to connect with them. That invitation. Yeah. yeah. It's heartbreaking, right? Because it's such a beautiful life when you do get to experience these things. And it's like, you know, for me, that's where I experience timelessness and spirituality mm-hmm. and, um, like a real sense of my body connecting to a place and my nutrition and my health and all those things being connected. And so, yeah, for me, I'm like, Oh, I'm like desperate to encourage people to pursue these things because I think that once you do start to experience, you know, your health and your membership in an ecosystem as being connected to the health of wild places, it's like, that's where, stewardship starts. And if you can get past that heartbreak of, oh my God, I've been robbed of this, or I've been disconnected for so long. Um, and like, that can be super traumatic, I think, to to realize mm-hmm. for an individual, it was for me, for sure. Interesting. And I think like once, once I got past that, then it's, 
it's motivating, right? And we get to find individual solutions to some of these issues that we wake up, you know, being bombarded with in headlines, you know, and it's so it's like, for me, it's like finding ways to participate and be on a productive path as a human that consumes things and, you know, like requires inputs and has outputs has been super healing, you know, like there's, it just makes it so that I feel like I have, um, I can make sense of some of what's happening on the planet right now. I think it gives you a sense of agency at, at times that it, feels like you need an anchor in that space and mm-hmm. and not just a sense of I, I know that for me it's not just a sense of productivity but just a sense of connection that I I've I value a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well and the demands of us now as humans in modern society are so intense. You know, like the intention demands of a phone, the, the, like professionally, I basically write emails for a living. Like that's very intense, you know, like it's, it's exhausting and weird. And so to like have those requirements of my like primal being also be countered by getting to sit down to a plate of wild game for dinner after a whole day of that and Mm. get transported back to the ridgeline that I was on when I, you know, released an arrow and shot my mule deer. And like, I get to go there spiritually at the end of the day of being a modern person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's, it's very important. <laughs> I feel like it helps, you know, make sense of where we are today a little bit as humans. It, it provides an anchor. And I, I've been interested in reading so much of your writing that you really connect it back to how can we consistently find a sense of belonging of membership on a yearly basis, not just inside of a single hunt or inside of a single gardening season even, but how can we cultivate this? And I actually, I pulled something that you wrote, probably hate me for reading it back to you, but I think I'm going (laughs) to do it anyway. Um, Because I think that this is really beautiful. And I think that you also have a way of how can we do this in a variety of different places? How can we do this from an urban space, from a rural space? And Mm -hmm. I really like that point of connection because I don't think most of us live where nature is just, I mean, nature is, is everywhere, but where those more open spaces feel like they're right outside our door. So I read Mm -hmm. this. I live in an urban area, far from the opportunity of directly managing large landscapes in a hands-on, holistic way year-round. My stewardship relationship to the wild game that I hunt is a creative mosaic. I seek out opportunities like hunting invasive species because it connects me to a greater sense of belonging and membership to the ecosystem. Throughout the year, I work on public lands and wildlife policy, volunteer, monitor game cameras, contribute to research, scout, and take stock of the important habitat for deer, elk, and other species in my region. I tend my garden, nurture pollinators, and plan meals around the success we've had. I pair choice cuts with special occasions to share with my community so the food and the environment it came from can tell its own story. Finding creative ways to live connected to these ideals, tend the land, and share that journey with others is my stewardship, and it's more than just a season. 
I don't hate you for reading that. That's really, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I think, man, writing is so helpful, right? Because we get to like it's really so helpful. like get our thoughts together. I love it. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's such a tricky, I've had to, um, I've really had to figure that out. Like, how do I maintain these connections in all these various places. And sometimes it's super frustrating, you know, like last year we moved and I left an urban garden that had, was flush with my, you know, fruit trees I had planted and like mm. this whole yard conversion and chickens and like a, a permaculture garden that was basically sustaining itself. And can't, now I'm like in a backyard that's half pavement, all grass, like starting over. Right. Yeah. Like, it's, and, and so often in my, life i've had that exact challenge where i've built a system oftentimes on other people's land that i didn't own you know and like had to leave it and start over mm -hmm. and um and so this feels like this ever-present challenge for me of how do i stay connected to this lifestyle that i've been exposed to and that i know is the right thing for me and that makes me the happiest and healthiest and like feel most connected to my soul and passions and the places around me. Like, how do I maintain that in yeah. any circumstance, you know? And, um, and so last year I just mm -hmm. had like, I had uh wine barrel gardens. That was it. You know, I, I went from like being, having like not being, not needing to buy vegetables ever to like, here it is, you know? And, yeah. and it was such a, it was such a good taste of my own medicine because I always encourage people to be like, just start no matter what the scale, like if it's your patio and it's a couple pots of tomatoes, like just start and do it because you're going to, it's going to get you outside watering in the morning or the evening. You're going to hear birds you're going to see the sunrise you're going to see the sunset you're going to get to know that plant like you're going to develop skills around looking at your soil that's just going to like build build and give you you know more opportunities next year and so i, I felt like i was cracking up at myself so i was like okay i'm i'm like the pot garden person right now you know um but this year it's like i've been able to build on that and now i got bees last year and i just had all these little um ways of like trying to pull it in and pull it together. But yeah, I think part of what motivated that writing in particular was the challenge of having gone from, uh, before I moved here, I was managing 10 acres in Northern California and I'd been there for a long time and I had a garden and a, a mature apple orchard that I was restoring and mm. um, a lot of connected wildland that we'd been tending for natives and hazels and thinning firs and working on encroachment of the um the meadows there and like starting to do controlled burns and just like I was able to yeah. to really like live all these concepts and values that I had learned about and then <clears throat> um then I got plopped in the city and I was like <laughs> like yeah. what does this mean now you know like how do I um, how do I make sense of this and how do I stay connected? And, and it was interesting because at that time, it was at the exact same time that I 
um, got interested in hunting. And right at the end of managing that landscape in California, I had this funny experience, light bulb moment where I was, um, we'd done so much work on the surrounding wildland that like the deer population was thriving. I was fighting to keep them out of my garden. I had like these areas where I was raising um, Ancona ducks and um, like bringing goats in and all this stuff. And I just felt like I was like blocking all these separate little ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was like right at the end where I realized, oh, like all the, the fur thinning and grassland work that we've done and like hazel management and oak tending, like I've been raising deer this entire time. (laughs) And then I didn't, it was just like, ding, you know, and it was the first time that I saw that, um, that opportunity for like, I don't need to keep animals over here from meat and carve out this plot for them. Like I could actually connect all these things. And for me being like a total wilderness junkie, in a backcountry junkie, I was like, this is an interesting opportunity because I also had the experience where like I'd be driving away to go backpack in Yosemite or something like right as all the apples were falling or my garden needed me or there was like some tense preservation stress <laughs> of the food system and like feeling this tension of like the cultivated and the wild yeah. environment. So when I started to get this inkling of like, oh, the wild environment could be my food source. You know, that was this very exciting thing. And then I moved to the city. So I was like, okay, what does this now mean? And um, happened at that moment to meet a friend who was a lifelong hunter. And um, he's the kind of person who like every thing on his wall has a story and every plate of food in front of you is like the most amazing thing you've ever eaten. And there, it was the first time that I'd, uh, been exposed to such reverence in hunting Mm -hmm. and such like high quality care of the meat and the preparation of the food. Um, and I just got, I hammered him with questions until he was like, do you just want to come with me? And I was like, Yes. (laughs) Um, So anyway, it's, I ended up hunting that year thinking I would just observe, you know, and then like getting more and more motivated by the training and the preparation and learning how to shoot a rifle and all these things that like went hunting that year, got a deer. And in this very simple, like seemingly unceremonious moment by myself, when I got home, after that hunt, I like cooked a piece of backstrap in the skillet, just like salt and pepper, butter, not even a big deal. Like ate it standing over the stove and yeah. like had that food and it just, my life changed forever. I was like, mm. this is for me, you know? Um, and so I think like that stage then I was like, okay, what does this mean now to have my food system be based on wild land and how does that change my stewardship perspective and what I need to do throughout the year in order to be like an active participant in its health and maintenance. I am just, I'm really captivated by that. You, you called it the tension between cultivated and wild environments, because I think for 
any of us that are entrenched in either or, you can feel that sense of tension. And I know as somebody who has spent most of my time in more cultivated environments, you see some of these deep cons of being yeah. tied to them in, in a certain way. And the amount of your time that they require on a on a daily basis. And I I, I don't want to say that that all environments don't require our time or or deserve our time and reciprocity. I don't even want to use the word require, but that there is this tension. And I think it's really interesting to watch you go from a little bit more of a wild environment just on a farm to a more cultivated environment in the city. And then mm -hmm. to flip-flop your food system to go from from cultivated and to a little bit more wild. And mm -hmm. I'm curious where that tension came up for you, like what it felt like to go from one place to the other and and to sort of see what is possible. Because I think that the tending to wild environments is much more of that bone deep space in who we are as humans. I mean, ag agriculture has been a very short amount of our history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, for me, I was excited because I felt like it had like solved something that was a mm. friction point for me deep down, you know, and, and I still have, like a garden and like I, I cultivate spaces, you know, I, I'm not like a fully wild food person, but um, I've had phases of that, which were super fun and really like educational. But um, I think uh, it, it helped something for me where, cause I think so often, you know, we go through these food phases in our cultivated like agriculture environment where it's like, okay, now chia seeds are the answer or soy is the answer or avocados are the answer or whatever it is. Like there's all these <laughs> moments where um, we get really keyed in on a solution for something, whether it's health or um, nutrition or farming or whatever. But to me, it's like having learned enough about agriculture and monocropping and um just most of the agricultural practices that exist out there it's like we're we're removing habitat yeah that's how i see it like yes. every diet no matter what it is whether it's vegan or vegetarian or omnivore carnivore like it takes up land mass you know and that land mass is a host and a home to all of these other species. Like the, yeah. the fallout of those agricultural decisions is so huge. And so for me getting to start to experience connecting my food system to wild land that essentially stayed the same after I harvested mm -hmm. And still continued to be this really diverse, thriving, you know, multi-layer ecosystem um, was super healing because the trees, the birds, the insects, you know, all of the understory shrubs, mm -hmm. everything else got to stay there. Um, and I was just this visitor who came in and harvested mushrooms or, you know, like 
gooseberries or, you know, packed out my deer and then left. And that all still got to exist. And I got to, you know, feed and nourish myself, um, along with everything else getting to stay intact in that ecosystem. So, yeah, I, I think like that's one of the best, um, like experiences that I've come to over the years is just not slicing and dicing based on, you know, these, these short-term fads or answers when it comes to cultivated environments, but just thinking about like the area of land that my, um, my food system takes up and what happens to everything else that, that is also dependent on that system. Yeah. Yeah. And within that, you know, and, and you can speak to this far better than I can. There's membership in terms of managing deer populations in yeah. it without that have no more predators left or have far yeah. fewer predators than they might have. And so there is also an act of being a part of better management of a wild place that we have irrevocably disrupted. Totally. Yeah. Wild pigs are like this fascinating, um, topic when it comes to this because they, uh, they wreak havoc on ecosystems all over the country. We're in, we're in a, a, a size of the, the land mass means that we will, we'll never eradicate them. Like they are, they require our management as people. We have introduced them <laughs> and they're this presence now in the ecosystem. Um, and I did this big like research um, project and hunt in Northern California about the presence of wild pigs because they're completely overrunning the, the area north of the Russian River. They're starting to cross the Russian River um, and they are just doing a lot of damage in that coastal prairie ecosystem. Um, and so people are really upset and, you know, it's a problem, but at the same time, um, ecologists up there are observing that they're actually ecosystem services that they're providing as a proxy to the missing elk and grizzly bear that mm. used to be in that environment um, with their rooting and digging and how they like scent mark and rub on young furs and keep them from sprouting up all over the, the grassland. And anyway, it's, it's very interesting because we have this, you know, we've disrupted this ecosystem and we now have, like, I think we've had to, we have to change our standards around what these things look like and which species we view as being productive or not productive and like work in the actual context that exists mm -hmm. today. Um, and so, you know, my, my theory at the end of all this was like, we've got to make peace with the pigs. <laughs> like we, yeah. we have to figure out they're how here. to like use them. They're here. They're not going away. Nope. We have to figure out how to like manage them in a way that's beneficial for the environment. Um, and also what a cool opportunity for a food source because they're incredibly fecund. They have four litters a year. Like you don't need, um, to draw a tag or to wait for this one week through the year to hunt them. Like they're available this whole time. If you, we just change our mindset around mm -hmm. the management and the availability, then what a cool opportunity to, you know, provide for yourself 
nutritionally, have an amazing outdoor experience pursuing these animals, and also like tend to that landscape and help the vegetation around it have a fighting chance in relation to the presence of all these pigs running amok, you know? Um, so I don't know, to me, that's more fun than like maintaining a fence and predators <laughs> in, in my, in my backyard or something. <laughs> Might be, I don't know. I do, I do a lot of the former and I, I, that sounds pretty good right now. I'm actually going to read because you wrote a really beautiful article about this and you wrote about the pigs. You said, it is hard to deny the beauty of the management relationship between pigs and hunters. We are their natural predators and they a regenerative food source that we could harness the ecosystem services of if managed intentionally. This relationship solves a modern environmental issue while producing delicious food and bestowing meaning and connection for how hunters have engaged and managed their ecosystems for thousands of years. Yeah. And Pigs. It's, it's a cool, it's a cool opportunity. I mean, it's, it's similar to axis deer in Hawaii, you know, where there's just this, this call to action for us to be active participants in our, in our ecosystems, you know, and um, I think that's really interesting and exciting and and um unlocks like a cool opportunity for us yeah and we need more people hunting them is my understanding i mean years ago there was a book that was released by barry estabrook called pig tales and he looked at these mm. stories of of hogs in all of these there was conventional farming pasture-based farming and then the feral hog population in the united states and some a little bit across the world and and looking at the impacts that they were making along the way and i i, I loved it as an exploration it's probably a little bit out of date now but i think that there is this opportunity where we need more people to step in and so there is this mm -hmm. again as you put it, this invitation to come and to learn a skill and to have an opportunity to get a little bit more connected. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the most fascinating things about pigs to me is that whether it's a domesticated pig or a wild pig, it's the same genus and species of Suscrofa. And so they are on this parallel spectrum that we're on of domesticated to feral um, you know, they were domesticated as they got, as they broke out and started crossing waterways and becoming this, you know, feral subset of the population. They got more wiry, they grew their tusks, like they just took on kind of like how an anadromous fish, you know, migrates between fresh and salt water and adapts its um, physical features. Mm. So it's like, also this deeply intellectual, curious thing where like they represent our own sort of relationship to domestication and wild too. Fascinating. I, I didn't even really consider how their morphology was changing from domesticated previously wild back into wild. And that's actually changing yeah. the way that they, that they look and the way that they, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> I'm going to have to think about that for a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's, um, I don't know. I think it just takes down some of these barriers that we all walk around with of like, I live here, they live here, mm -hmm. or, you know, 
this is my nature Mm -hmm. environment. That's an urban environment. When there's like (sighs) hawks in the city, in the trees and dandelions growing up in the sidewalks, which is like one of the most best medicinal everyday plants you could possibly (laughs) use, you know? And so I think anything that starts to break down these barriers of separation, Mm -hmm. I just, I just love learning about. Yeah. I love that too. I, th- this actually might be a good space for this. Um, my friend James Connolly always, always says this, and I pulled this as I was looking at some of the citizen scientist projects you've been a part of mm. with, um, w- with, I think it was Joe Reese on habitual migration corridors and, and looking at the intersections and the spaces where we're seeing wildlife and what we've built as humans kind of intersect and cross one another. And um, it's a quote from Muhammad Ali. But he says, looking at life from a different perspective makes you realize that it's not the deer that is crossing the road, rather it's the road that is crossing the forest. Muhammad Ali said that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. The, The coexistence of habitat and the overlay of human development is to me, that's the, that's like my number one conservation issue. It's like, are, are we going to be able to maintain the land mass that these mm-hmm. species require in order to live their lives? You know, and I think in, in that, um, article that you're referencing through this citizen science work that I'd started to do here in Utah, there's, I live right at the base of the Wasatch mountains and it's, the most visited national forest in the country. So we have five ski resorts up there, tons of trails, you know, there's a lot of intersected uh, habitat based on recreation. And um, I participate in this citizen science project called the Wasatch Mammal Watch, where volunteers, uh, we put up and monitor motion censored cameras all over the mountains in order to figure out uh, how human presence affects wildlife behavior and where the species density is so that that information can be used to do informed development in the area, which I think philosophically in my, my trajectory as a conservationist, you know, originally I was like, keep the people out. (laughs) We need wild spaces to just exist. And, you know, there should be no participation or Mm -hmm. blocking of that. And now like the reality is like, we have to figure out how to coexist and it's not enough just to hate sidewalks. Like you have to figure Mm -hmm. out where the roads need to go and how to, you know, make both possible. Like there's just, there's no other way around it at this point. And so I love participating in this project because it it maps all of that out and gives data to developers and gives us some backing around like actually no this you know this is where the overpass should be for the freeway because we have the most bottleneck here and you know these two separated areas of critical habitat are key to the migration route and stuff like that um but yeah, that I think that would be another one of these like pivotal turns in my life around like we we have to figure out how to exist with development and population growth and you know the the loss of of habitat and wildland yeah. and um 
and that and that's probably informed by just living in such a big city right now and and seeing that all the time um you know this year we had the biggest snowfall in 40 years in salt lake and there were elk wintering in the city and it was you know for me i'm like well yeah like we we are in their winter range you know like we have built homes in their winter range (laughs) and um the mayor closed certain trailheads for hikers and dogs there was like you know special infrastructure set up for the elk that were wondering and i loved seeing it you know like i didn't love seeing that they were having to navigate our urban environment but i did appreciate the awareness that this was bringing to folks who you know maybe have lived here a long time and just haven't ever realized like oh we reside in critical habitat <laughs> for these species yeah. and we can figure out how to coexist but yeah there's um i think citizen science is a really cool way for people to um to to make like again one of these things like gardening or beekeeping or um, wild foraging or hunting or whatever it is. It's like, there's a way for us to actively be involved in proactive management and research without having to be a scientist or, you know, an expert farmer or whatever it is. Like it's, it's a, it's a way to, to participate in some of this stewardship. May I ask where you've, I, I, cause I, I, I can't leave this without asking this, where you've landed on the ways that we're inevitably encroaching and also how can we make space for better coexistence? Because I think that this is one of those hard problems, right? That there's, this is what is happening and it's not going to change. And Mm -hmm. so then how do we begin to look at ways of being that <laughs> represent better ways of coexisting than we have been. And, and, and I'm just yeah. curious where, where you've ended up on a philosophical or even at a heart level. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on a, on a heart level, I want to like run away into the, <laughs> into a rural place and like <laughs> live in a s- small bubble (laughs) like is very peaceful um but but productively speaking (laughs) realistically speaking you know knowing what i know i think this phase of of where i'm at with all of that is like very um diligent i feel diligent i feel Mm. like more active and involved in um being present at those friction points mm-hmm. than I ever have before. I think it's harder, you know, it was easier for me to run away and live in the woods and like live off the grid and have my perfect little system that worked for me and have my water come from that spring and my, you know, power come from solar and my food come from the garden and to, to live this, you know, private, um, harmonious life. And and I don't know if this is just what happens as you get older, <laughs> you, you know, feel more of a responsibility to um, the people around you, or just maybe it's just a product of learning um, and wanting to, and knowing that all of that development and um, destruction is going to happen, whether you're in your bubble or not, um, has kind of moved me towards being 
like front and center at those friction moments and being a really fierce advocate for um for these things that I care about and that's that's in one way like trying to lead a lifestyle that is open and inviting to people who are curious about hunting and gardening and foraging and fishing and you know wanting to have a, a deeper connection to the place around them like I want to invite that and help make people feel like it's available to them and get mm. them on that path to stewardship um, and membership and then on the other hand you know at this stage in my professional life it's like I'm on several nonprofit conservation boards. I work in policy and advocacy. Like I have a good understanding of the politics in my area. I'm present at the meetings. I'm like carrying all of these messages, you know, directly into the the places where decisions are being made. Yeah. Um, and that to me feels like, like my duty, you know, like yeah. I, I, I have to do that. And if I were just secluded alone in the mountains, um, trying to live this peaceful life, I'd, I'd be thinking about that as a role that mm -hmm. I feel responsible in, in playing. Has that shifted too with being pregnant and, and bringing the next generation into a space where I think there are increasing number of friction points? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really cool to feel that starting to happen. You know, like I've always thought about stewardship from a multi-generational perspective and, and to feel it is something else, you know, mm. and, and to, to be curious about how I'm going to be able to teach and inspire this little person to share some of my values is also very exciting. Cause I've, I've like been a school garden teacher before and been, you know, witnessed like kids of any, from any background, like if they're picking a strawberry and eating it, or they're like, you know, they plant spinach and then they get to pluck it out of the ground and put it in their mouth. Like they love to do it. They love to eat it. Like I think I have this theory that like, if you involve kids and even adults in these processes, like it taps into these things we all feel and love and sets us on these paths. So it, I'm, I'm curious, you know, this will be a good test of, of all my theories. Um, but I also feel, you know, like a deeper connection to a longer timeline and scale of, of stewardship now than I have before. And I've, I've heard that in other parents and have always respected it. Um, but feeling, feeling it is, is neat. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I, I was just genuinely curious because I think that these small things can shift us in, I mean, they're, they're big things, but these big things can shift us in big ways and, and the way that we view that aspect of stewardship. Yeah. yeah. I'm so curious because I was, I was bow hunting in Hawaii a couple months ago and I was seven months pregnant at the time, which I don't, I don't necessarily recommend hunting seven months pregnant, but like, I'm really glad that I did it. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was so curious. Like there's these photos of me, you know, with a pig and a goat and like this giant belly and all this stuff. And, um, which by the way, that pig that we got had been eating, um, like Mac nuts and guavas, like groundfall. And it's like one of the best Wow. Meats I've ever eaten. Yeah. Like it's just out of this world. Good. Um, but I was thinking about like 
how you like I I subscribe to the philosophy that like we we aren't just these moldable humans, you know, that we like come into the world with a soul and a spirit and like a genetic identity that is not mm-hmm. entirely shapeable by the people around mm-hmm. us, you know. And so thinking about that as a parent, I'm like, who is this person gonna be? And are they gonna think I'm nuts? when they look back and see these photos of like them in my belly and me all dressed in camo hunting. Um, and like, will we share that? Or am I going to be like a dance mom? You know, like who knows? You know? <laughs> it's just like that, that yeah. irony is totally up for um, discovery in my world. <laughs> but uh, another yeah, surprise. It, it, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. another true surprise. I agree that the end have their own their own identity and dreams and and desires of ways of being in this world. But yeah. I think it's incredible that you were out there bow hunting and seven months pregnant. And I saw the pictures. <laughs> yeah. Was, I, I think oh it was fantastic gosh. to see. And I think that I think that truly it's not something that we see modeled in culture. And I'll be honest that I don't love, you know, and and maybe you share this, I don't love the female butcher uh Mm. sort of pigeonhole that I get oftentimes. And to be out there hunting at seven months pregnant gives people an invitation that I think we almost never see. I I don't know that I have ever seen that really in any place. And (laughs) and that is a beautiful invitation. Yeah. Well, and I, my realization around it was like, oh, this is why like women run marathons when they're super pregnant, it's not like, it's because that's what they love to do. And that's how they feel alive and, Mm. you know, connected to who they are and their passions. I'm like, that's why I'm hunting. I'm not hunting right now because it's super comfortable. And I feel like Mm. physically really all about it. You know, like I was exhausted and breathing really heavy and like my clothes didn't fit and all this stuff. But like, it was important to me to feeling like alive and connecting to myself and, you know, rooted in my values. And I was like, that's why I did it, Mm. you know? And that's why um, I think we often see people like pursuing these things at odd times. Yeah. Because we have to, I don't ever want to be severed from the things that make me feel alive. And I think that to give that to the next generation too, that sense of following what makes you feel so deeply alive is a gift in and of itself, even in the face of physical discomfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I hope that's like the mentality I can maintain as a mother too, because this is all up, you know, I get, so many frustrating um, responses just being a, a woman in the hunting space because we're we're ninety five percent of registered hunters are male. You know, it's probably very similar for you in the butchering space. Um, and you know, people are already telling me what my future is going to look like as a mom with oh. these passions, and I'm like, oh, oh. you have no idea. You know, like, that irritates me like, to oh, no I, end. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Like people will be like, oh, guess your guess your fall's ruined this year because you're having a baby. And I'm like, no, it's not. Like I'm going to do things that I love to do. It's going to look different and it's going to be game time decisions, you know, and, and way more flexible than what it's been in the past. But they just, you know, I, I hope that I'm living in a way that is to me as a parent, like you have to be connected to your passions and the yes. things that keep you feeling alive in order to be a good role model and yes. be a loving and available, you know, steward for this little yes. life that's coming in. So like, it's not an option for me to be like, oh, I just won't do these things anymore because it's harder or I don't have as much time. It's like, mm. no, this is an increased, you know, call to to action of how are you going to continue to be a role model um, and live your values? Arguably more important than it's ever been before to step into that aliveness so that you can continue Mm. to cultivate the most amount of presence for that child. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is where I've been thinking a lot about like the difference between hobbies and ways of life. And I think there's some things that will be in a hobby category for me that are easier to like pick up and put down. And then there are other things that are like, no, this is my way of life. And Mm. and this is just going to have to be, we're going to have to figure out how to make it work, you know? Yeah. Oh, I love the invitation to explore that just for myself. Like what, what is hobby and Mm. what is way of life? I think that's a, that's a beautiful way of looking at things. And I'm going to, I'm going to take that away and kind of ask myself that question later on. Well, I think about that for you often because like, especially with like diet and nutrition, you know, like they're like, this is, this is a way of life for you because you've, you've healed yourself Mm -hmm. through these, this knowledge and this learning. And like, it's not just something that is fun to learn No, or, you know, entertaining like this is your way of life and um and so yeah when i witness people like you who have like such clarity and drive around the things that they pursue it it, it makes me reflect on that as well and and sort of identify which is which in my own world mm. thank you for that thank you just thank you mm-hmm. i think i think this is actually a good place one of the things that i wanted to explore with you is the mirror between stewarding land and stewarding bodies. And I think one of the things that I watched you go through was your partial knee replacement and Mm -hmm. watched the way that you approached the stewardship of your body before that too, when you were experiencing (laughs) so much discomfort and still continuing to perform as a high level athlete. And I know that for myself, I've seen a lot of how we steward our bodies, how we steward the the bodies of our communities, and how we steward land have a lot of tie ends together. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I will start this by saying that the the stewardship of my physical body is feels like a lifelong challenge that I'm always going to be <laughs> for all of like, us we're stuck here figuring out like uh, oh man just and and being pregnant is like brought this up in a whole nother way like 
experiencing limitations or, you know, finding thresholds and, um, and really respecting what's possible today, you know, versus what was possible yesterday, or what do I think my body owes me (laughs) in this moment, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I, um, I, I mean, I grew up like an athlete with every coach telling me pain is weakness, leaving the body. And so mm. I've had to like undo that my entire life and um, have been through so many like big surgeries. And I had a spinal fusion when I was 16 and um, for scoliosis and, wow. you know, just didn't know anything about anything as it relates to like real healing um mentally or physically, or like the modalities outside of pharmaceuticals and x-rays and and a doctor being like, you're cleared, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's taken me a long time to get to um, the place that I found last year and the year before, which was this really like great recovery and application of my skills and learning as it relates to that knee surgery. I'd had a couple before, you know, went back to sports and an active lifestyle too soon, like got myself in the position essentially that I, you know, was in, um, of having to face this big surgery and like serious degradation of my body. Um, and it was so empowering <laughs> to go through it. You know, I think leading up to it, I'd, I'd put it off for a really long time. Um, similar to like hunting pregnant, like just gritted through the discomfort and the pain because like my soul needed to do these things. Mm-hmm. Right. And then had the reckoning of, I need to face this and deal with it. Um, and man, all of the, talk about like wild food being a portal in those moments when I was stuck in the city on the couch, icing my leg five times a day, you know, like completely unable to do the things that help me feel connected to my wild spirit. (laughs) But like having those meals (laughs) at night, remembering my success as a Mm. hunter, like connecting to that nourishment, you know, having that, that wild food become a part of me and a part of, you know, my DNA and, um, feeling like the, the healing connection, both like physically and spiritually was so, so important, you know? And I, I think that's why canning peaches is so awesome. And, you know, like having pickles and all that stuff is because like you, there are these portals that just, you know, bring us back to, a different time in the season, maybe yes. when it's dark and stormy out and you remember the sunshine and you get to taste it and experience it and all of that. So I think um, more than ever now, like I have those touch points all throughout my house because it's like, I, I need them. Like I, I need to stand up from four or five hours of gnarly emails and phone calls or whatever it is. And like, look at pheasant feathers and remember my time in the fall or whatever, you know, like yeah. it's just part of, part of, um, staying connected for me. But yeah, I think there's been some cool, um, parts along this journey that have helped me understand my 
my health and the health of wildlands through food um, and see, you know, food as medicine, as you talk about a lot, um, deconstructing kind of the modern food system and how we view food as one thing and medicine as another thing Mm -hmm. and really looking at them as, as combined, like that's a cool door to open, (laughs) you know, like once we get to start doing that, then it's like, Oh, I'm actually maintaining my health and nurturing my body like all day long, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's so much more fun than taking a vitamin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah. And then, and then like once, once you kind of open that door, then, I mean, in the plant world, it's just a phenomenally cool experience because like you get to deconstruct where, you know, medicine comes from mm-hmm. and all, look at it in a different way. All of it is derived. And yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so then suddenly the backcountry is also your first aid kit mm. and, you know, or your, um, I remember being on, um, my first, uh, two week wilderness trip with that program I was mentioning early on, um, and we were in the backcountry for two weeks and I started to get a cold and somebody gave me a field guide. Um, uh, I think it was Michael Moore's of wild edible medicinals of the Pacific Northwest. And he's got amazing books for a ton of regions, but it was the first time anybody had opened that door for me. And I went out and found, um, Yerba Santa and made myself some tea. And that night by the campfire, my nose turned into a faucet and I had like healed myself in that moment by going on a hike and harvesting a wild plant. And so anyway, I think the, that, that journey of, I know we're like, we've come a long way from knee surgery, but like the, the way to view like health and wild land and our connection to these places as integrated both physically and spiritually is, and it's just a fun life. You mentioned something, I think you, you explained it without saying it because food is medicine. Yes. But you also talked about place and story as medicine and you use the word portals, which I think is so beautiful that when we pull out a can of peaches on a stormy winter night, it transports us to another place. And that is a certain kind of medicine for our, our souls in that, in that dark night of winter, but that place is also a part of it that being a part of place provides a a sense of medicine not just in what it provides literally from the land but that feeling of connection and so that both place and story are playing a role in our physical and psycho spiritual health totally yeah i mean I've had my heart broken by like losing my sense of place more than yes. anything else in my life. Me too. <laughs> Me too. My biggest yeah. heartbreak was leaving the West. And and it yeah. and it behaved like a heartbreak, right? There was there was wild yeah. wild out of control grief. There was a feeling that I couldn't reclaim something that I had once had that I had lost, like deep deep disconnection. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on the flip side, it's, it's this, like what you lose is that feeling of walking around and seeing the plants that you recognize popping up in the spring and like, Oh, welcome back. Oh, you're here. We're all here together. Like that, 
that feeling of community and home that extends beyond the human environment, you know, and yeah, once you get, I mean, that's just like, probably should be a warning for anybody listening to this podcast of like, once you engage in these types of things, you, you open yourself up to that, that level of, that level of connection has an equal level of heartbreak and I mean, it's intimacy, um, and it's that's relationship. Just what relationship. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's relationship. It's intimacy. Uh, it's yeah. it's affection. It's it's all of the things that that lead to heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you got to be brave. It. In addition, yeah, yeah it's be totally brave. Worth be it. vulnerable. Yeah. It's totally worth it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That actually, that actually brings something up that I wanted to. You've said this a couple of times. You've said this in writing, and you've said this in podcasts. That one of your favorite things is to see the unseen in nature. Mm. And I, mm-hmm. I just want to hear you talk about that because I think that, I think that there is a lot that is unseen right now. But I also think that when we have that sense of intimacy and relationship, that there is an opportunity to be a witness to Mm. where we are at this point in time to see maybe those friction points but also to see to see something else to see something beyond that and so I I'd love to hear how that shows up for you yeah I think this um stemmed for me in when I started learning about being a naturalist and um all of the, and, and like pattern language and permaculture mm. and all of these cycles that are happening around us that we are oblivious to until we start paying attention and realize that they're like patterning this whole existence around us. And we can either participate it and harness it and be a part of it or continue to be oblivious, right? Like yeah. in, in home design, like passive solar heating and wind blocks and all these ways that we can like have a more neutral presence in our ecosystem or not, you know, or not. Um, So (laughs) there are these, yeah. So there's just all these forces, you know, energetic, physical, um, natural. And, and then the same in like a, a wildlife environment where, um, I think I, I'd like spent enough time with people who were teaching me about um, like reading tracks and sign in um, in the natural world. And it felt like this um, almost like this Easter egg hunt of like, you know, all of a sudden you see something and it leads to something else and it leads to something else. And like, there's, there's tracks in the mud on the ground and then you go past a tree and there's, like hair stuck in the bark Mm. from the animal that had brushed past. And um, I think like so often we want to see the bear, right? Mm. (laughs) But like there are all these, and and oftentimes you don't, if you're just hiking along and gabbing with your friends, like you think that you're the only one there, but if you stop and you pay attention, you can start to unfold all these small details of an environment that unfold this like orchestra of life that is existing and like just kind of like giving you the sneak all the time um which i think like now it's like this game that i like to play where it's like ooh i can like find out who is here and what happened and be this 
like nature detective, you know, who's, who gets to like find out the story of <laughs> what went down here this morning or, um, and I love like being a part of that, immersing myself in that mystery. And then of course, as a hunter, like those are the skills you need in order to be successful. So now it's part of how I pursue my food and like typically, you know, more success or less success, like those skills are required of me. But, um, and then I think in the, like the larger context of our built landscape, like we have this, um, like technology where it is today is allowing us to map and record data about all these typically unseen things, you know, and migration is one of them where we have decades now of radio collar um, data for mule deer migration, elk, pronghorn, all these species in the West that are showing us like, here's where they're going. And it's, they're, they're not navigating these places because they want to, they're navigating them because they have to. Yeah. And it puts it on a map and makes it, makes this typically unseen pattern so visible and undeniable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's this, it's like this, um, this, t- this tapping in journey, right? Like you can either wake up and sit through the sunrise and, see the birds and, and like be a part of that show, or you can sleep in, you know, you can, you can see it or not see it. It's kind of up to you to, um, to start to peel back the layers and like put yourself in a participatory environment. I think too, that there's an aspect of honing a skill of observation. I think about this a Mm. lot when it comes to farming, when it comes to foraging, that there is a a bit of a learning curve to becoming an observer. And I think oftentimes we become numb to our built environments and we carry with us that numbness into more wild landscapes. And we have to reawaken that sense of being able to see where the tracks lead into the hair caught on a little piece of bark or to notice the habitat of red-winged blackbirds in the wetlands and how you might want to move cattle around that space. So whatever it is. And and yeah, it's a skill. It's a skill. I I often um call it like a a calibration between these environments, right? Where it's like you, I feel like I have to very consciously go back and forth between the two. Like I have to calibrate my senses in order to tolerate notifications and noises all day long in my work world, you know? And like that takes a tuning out. Yes. It takes like building up a, a tolerance and a threshold to be able to handle that. You can't take it all in, you know? And then on the other side of things, I have to recalibrate to open that all back up and be available for those tiny, tiny, tiny cues that happen in the natural world. And, um, every year before the hunting season, like that's why I go scouting. That's why I practice getting up, you know, a few hours before dawn and sitting still through a sunrise and, you know, glassing and looking for patterns and tracks and Mm -hmm. all that stuff, because I have to 
those are skills that I have to recalibrate and balance from my normal day-to-day environment. So I, I don't, I don't, um, I don't underestimate how hard that is for modern people, you know, to go back and forth between, yeah. um, uh, between those things. I do very much see it as a, as a skill for survival in both contexts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to learn how to, I mean, I think being able to orient and even the built environment is important and, and to find that mm-hmm. ability to have that window of tolerance that's right for where you are and to titrate all of the stimuli. And yeah, then it, but then it takes actually, I think for me, I know that sometimes it takes a great deal of effort to remain open enough to be able yes. to feel that when I leave my built environment and and to have a sense of maybe even vulnerability now that I'm I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. and if you've experienced those swings, it's like again, one of those um times in life where it's like it's easier just to go hide away <laughs> and not yeah. not face the the chaos of of modern society like that's why it's so hard to re-enter the world after a wilderness trip or you know some type of immersion because you're like oh my god <laughs> yeah. there's too much here um but yeah it's i think it's a very important level of like care and awareness um that I've had to learn kind of living the lifestyle I live, which is, you know, being deeply immersed in, in like a very modern high, high paced professional urban world. And then also still being able to like have my wits about me when I go into the wilderness and, you know, like I'll, I'll have friends who, um, I don't maybe they like they have an animal that needs tending to or like a roadkill situation or whatever it is and my whole exist like philosophy on that has always been like oh I'm gonna go participate I'll help you skin that bobcat like I don't want the fur I just want to keep my skills up you know <laughs> just any chance I get to yeah. sort of balance these things um, I think gives me confidence that I can go back and forth. I love this too as an invitation for other people that live in urban environments. And also I think the view it gives you to toggle back and forth between these two very mm. disparate worlds that it gives you a unique view of the friction points that are happening uh, in in mm-hmm. these spaces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a funny place I want to take us next that was actually really important for me to touch on with you. And I, I hope that's okay. And I couldn't decide what to call this because it's not it's not failure. <laughs> but you've written a lot about unfilled tags and about mm. cultivating this sense of skill and having these moments that are frustrating. And I I pulled a little bit, but I think that I've been thinking a lot about failure in my entrepreneur life and mm. what success looks like and what failure looks like and and how we approach the idea of not failure so much as a dream or an idea that we have that might not 
turn out the way that we had ideally imagined. And I think an unfilled tag is that. And I think that there are many things in life. And I'm curious to get your your slant on this. And I'll read these these two things that you wrote. Um, and it was about it was about not not filling a tag, but This past mule deer season taught me that I have to find my pace in the long game. I am actually capable of feeling self-doubt and a sense of progress at the same time. And I'm learning what it takes to source endurance every day. And then you also said, the goals I have for myself as a hunter and an entrepreneur have required boldness, but also digging in during moments of sheer exhaustion and self-doubt. I've learned that beginning is actually pretty easy, but what comes next takes endurance, maintenance, and constant recommitment. I think we covered a little bit of that beginning being easy a little bit back in the interview, but I loved this because I think that Oftentimes there are unfilled tags, uh, both literally and figuratively in our life. And it's a big part of what we are here to navigate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember um, the stage of my hunting journey I was at when I wrote that article, which was, um, I think it was like my second through my my second, third, and fourth season, um, where I had realized that this was my life's journey (laughs) for now, you know, like that this was something that I had to learn, um, and had had help initially, and then was like in it to figure it out. And, um, it didn't feel like an option to me, like, because I, I think it had tied together so many of my, um, like the key points in my life getting to there. I was like, this is my direction. I have to learn it, you know? And, and I was just struggling so hard. (laughs) And so there was, uh, there was one, like, a that really frustrating stage of, of bumbling around as a new person doing something and just continually being shown the, 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 how, how it wasn't working, you know, like, uh, spooking deer or just not even seeing a deer for six days straight, being so exhausted, like feeling like I didn't have the mental stamina Mm -hmm. developed or, you know, doubting every direction I was taking in the woods, like, am I actually in habitat? Am I actually in the right place at the right time? All that stuff. And when you're hunting by yourself, like, it's just, if you're not careful, like, there's a lot of time to think. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I was, and, and at the same time, being so clear that, like, this was my food source now. So there was this, like, deep pressure need Wait. to feel, yes, exactly. And the added layer of, like you in Utah, like I, that was when I was hunting the general rifle season here and you have about nine days in the year to make it happen and that's it, you know? So it, it is, there is a ton of pressure. And if some person, you know, you've hiked in early, you've got on a ridgeline and you're in your spot and like some person walks through the valley that you've earned, you know, physically getting there, like it, it can ruin your whole morning. It's really frustrating. It can feel, um, 
you know, like, like unrecoverable. So there's just a ton of highs and lows. And at the time I was also, um, running a business and experiencing that similar, like redlining threshold of just, you know, being so committed to something and having to, um, show up every day, still, still willing to do it. And I think that's part of, um, you know, Seth Gordon has some, some really awesome philosophies around these sorts of things when it comes to like creativity and determination and success where, um, he's like, yeah, you don't, you don't wait for the perfect morning and the hot cup of coffee, um, and the circum and like the inspiration to flow in order to sit down and do your writing. Like you have to, you have to just do it. You have to essentially like grind it out and, um, and work in those moments where you do feel exhausted and, um, like continue to recommit to the things that you have decided you're doing. And so I just, I think at that time, I was being faced with like grit and determination (laughs) at all levels. Um, and it was really challenging me to, to define for myself, like what was success and what was failure, um, in these paths of like really intense learning or these stages of really intense learning. Has it shifted over the years? And now even into pregnancy? Yes. Uh, Well, you know, what's funny is I feel like I'm on the cusp of like this starting all over. (laughs) Like I've gotten, um, I think five years into hunting was when I started being able to like consistently find animals. Um, And I remember just being like, oh my God, (laughs) this is, I feel so accomplished. And that's like, just finding them in binoculars on a, on, you know, at a distance, like knowing what pattern to look for when you're three miles away and when and where and how to like spot and glass and all that stuff. And, um, and just the, like the feeling of accomplishment to be able to go out and consistently find animals. I was like, Oh, like so proud of this, you know? And then, um, when I started to move from, rifle hunting, which in my opinion is like the, the good beginner route to go. Um, even though I had the goal of getting into bow hunting when I started to become a successful bow hunter, which is something that I like at different points along that journey, you know, years two, three, four, (laughs) I was like, I'll probably never be able to do that. Like I felt the dream sort of slip away because Mm -hmm. it had been so hard to accomplish like the stage that I was in. Um, so it was like all these unlocks. And then last year, um, I harvested my, uh, first bull elk with my bow. And it was such an interesting reflection because I remember being hunter safety with a bunch of 13 year old boys. And actually my husband who I met there, which is a whole nother funny story, but, um, going around the room and everybody being like, why are you here? What do you want to do? And I remember them being like, you know, I was the only female in the room <laughs> and, um, people are like, Oh, I want to deer hunt with my dad and I want to go duck hunting and I want to do this. And like, it got to me and I was like, I want to bow hunt elk. Like I want to become an mm. archery elk hunter. And it just like spilled out of my mouth. And that's mm. like, it's like black belt 
hunting. Yeah. (laughs) And, and along the course of learning how to hunt, I had started to like feel that goal slip away because of, you know, learning just more and more how much it was going to take and how like kind of not impossible it was, but how impossible it started to feel. And so last year when I like accomplished that goal, it was such a good lesson in like not losing sight of, of the things that like are deeply in us as desires and motivations, even though we're experiencing setbacks and failure, you know, quote unquote, and like all of the things that, um, and like just make a a learning path so rich and challenging. (laughs) Um, yeah. And so I, I fully expect that, you know, motherhood is similarly going to knock me into a really humble place <laughs> where I'm like, <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> you know, like here we go because it's it's one of these things that you you know you can read and learn things, but it's it's this is going to be an experiential journey and um, just have to be be ready for the ups and downs and the the things that inevitably you're going to face that, you know, remind you that you're not an expert. (laughs) (laughs) And won't ever be one, I think, in the journey of parenting. Uh, Maybe, I don't know. I I, I won't speak for that. But um, yeah, just always a journey. I hate Mm -hmm. I mean, I think in many ways, that's a really beautiful place to wrap up. I would thank you for that peace. I I think that that is a really good reminder of what it is to learn something that you're devoted to and to be in service Mm. to that goal and Mm -hmm. to hold through the hardship and the perceived sense of quote unquote failures that happen in it. Um, Yeah. I think I needed to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, it's, it's a good, um, I needed to hear some of the things you reread today. <laughs> that was, like, helpful. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious if you have anything to add. You know, I know that we went some really different places. I've listened to you on some podcasts, and I think that you've put out so much amazing work for people that want to find an entry point into hunting and want to find an entry point too into doing some citizen scientist work. Um, and I don't know how much I've seen on, on policy and advocacy work, but I think that one of the beautiful things is that, and, and something I really want to bring into this is how can people living in an urban space find their, their way into connection and a sense of stewardship. And I'm really grateful for what you're doing to create an invitation for that. Yeah. Well, I think first thing is it just I'm always available like this is my favorite set of topics on the internet and social media so if anybody has you know questions about where to start or what to do or how to pursue um these types of interests in their environment like please reach out and let's workshop it and figure out you know who to connect you with but just the biggest thing is try something you know and I think what I've 
learned uh, over the years is that there's so many like stones to turn over in any community of experts and people who are passionate Mm -hmm. about these types of things and willing to teach others and who might be looking for someone to take them under their wing. Um, So whether that's, you know, I've had a lot of luck um, tracking down like local mycology societies (laughs) and I'm like plant community people and just like getting, seeking out those opportunities to get on a hike with somebody who's knowledgeable and learn from their experience. So I would say like start, start um, exploring your, your local community and the nonprofits and the citizen science groups and the, you know, different naturalist organizations or botanical societies or whatever it is that, um, that you can find and go hang out with those folks because they're going to be the most knowledgeable and inspiring experts in your area. And, and they're probably going to teach you a ton. Um, and what was your other question? Well, um, I, I don't even know that now, but I love this because I think that this is also a good place to <laughs> connect back into community. And I think that this is actually something that yeah. we're deeply missing. And these are, these are, going to be diverse communities of people that you might not otherwise find. I mean, this is, this is being brought together by an interest. And so I really like that as a lever to pull. Yeah. Oh, and it was policy. That's, um, yeah, the, yeah. On the, how to get involved. So this is like, I, I don't consider myself a policy expert and I never will be. And that's because I've worked enough with like lifelong DC policy folks to know I will never be at their level. Um, so I consider myself like a very, um, like a lay person <laughs> in this arena. And I've also learned that that's like a very powerful role because you mm. are speaking from experience of the place that you represent and that you live and you are the knowledgeable person and mm. you are the you are the messenger for your environment. And that is a critical role in the grand scheme of um, political advocacy. So, um, so mm-hmm. don't underestimate your role in this if you know nothing about um, policy or advocacy or getting involved. Um, on the, there's tons of ways. Again, it's like start digging in your community because this stuff really starts small scale and then power builds into larger and larger groups and organizations from there. Um, on like the sportsman side of things, um, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership is a coalition of all of the um, species interest groups from Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation to the Mule Deer Foundation to Pheasants Forever. And all of those groups have local chapters typically in their states. And it's the same for um, a lot of other conservation organizations where there'll be these local contingencies of folks to learn from and get involved with that then ladder up to these larger coalitions of people who are working to organize, you know, all of us. Um, so I start there. Definitely. There's also like the outdoor Alliance is a really cool one, um, that makes getting involved in, um, in conservation work for public lands, like very easy, you know, and that's their whole mission is working with and motivating individuals who are passionate and giving them the tools and resources to participate. So, um, 
yeah, I think my message there is don't underestimate your role and mm. don't think you're not qualified <laughs> because you're needed and there's there's lots of folks ready to kind of help you on your journey. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing all of this this wisdom. I, I, I often find that interviews find me in a place where I needed to hear what someone had to say. And there was a lot of that here today. And I, I'm just really appreciative of that. So I, I just want to th thank you. I, this found me exactly where I needed it. I, well, I mean, it's such a treat to spend the time digging into our whys, right? You know, yeah. like it's a reset for my day too. And um, yeah, it's, reflection is such a, a gift when we can <laughs> sit down and do it. It is. Um, so I appreciate the invitation. I'm honored to be a guest yeah. on your show. This is the, the podcast is truly uh, been, been something to watch and listen to. Mm. And I really you. admire your dedication to these topics and, um, and who you're bringing in and it's just a really cool community of experts and, um, and passionate folks. Thank you. Tell people where they can find you and I'll have all of this in show notes, but, um, just so, so I know what's best. Yeah. Instagram, um, lindsay.brown.davis. And Brown has an E, so that's the tricky part. <laughs> and my website is the same if you want to find some of these articles that Kate has been referencing or reach out and chat about your own passions and journeys. That's another way too. And that's uh, lindsaybrowndavis.com. I love it. Thank you again so much. I'm so excited for people to hear this and, and to find it. Thank yeah, you. thanks, Kate. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find Mind, Body, and Soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.